Yeah. So what's your source of knowledge about mathematics and mathematical culture? Oh, yeah, the source, you're asking the source of my knowledge about mathematics and mathematical culture. Well, I have a, a PhD in, in mathematics. I went to grad school uh, at Rutgers University, and I got my PhD in 72. So in some ways, yeah, some of the experiences reflect on things that, uh, th experiences that I had. And, I, you know, I've hung around the Berkeley campus a little bit. Uh, I've gone to talks here and so on. So, uh, and of course, I worked as a math professor for many years. And then I, I, when I moved to California, I switched to being a computer science professor. But I've certainly hung around with a lot of crazy mathematicians, which I love. I love them. I love mathematics. Yes? What was your PhD thesis about? Uh, only in Berkeley would somebody ask me that. Uh, what was my PhD thesis about? It was, a, it was called Undefinable Sets. And uh, in set theory, uh, basically there's this mathematical idea that you can represent anything as a set, an abstract set. And then we know there's uncountably many sets, and there's only countably many definitions in the language. And so some sets don't have definitions. And we know that the set of all true sentences is not definable. Because if it were definable, you could get a liar paradox. And then I started wondering, well, what about the rest of the sets that aren't definable? Why aren't they definable? And I was able to prove that if we assume that every set is constructible, then the only reason a set is undefinable is because it can be used to define truth. So in the constructible universe, undefinability and truth are the same thing. <laughs> well, you asked. <laughs> and this is Berkeley, so I want to do my best. You never know. Might be a set theorist out there. Yeah? Are numbers alive? Are numbers alive? Um, well, that would be a nice thing to think. Uh, I guess I could get my head in a place. As a science fiction writer, I'm willing to entertain almost any hypothesis. Uh, and you can sort of imagine a space where the number two would be sort of glowing and buzzing and the number 379. Numbers, they, they do have this, there's this nice thing about numbers that seems like they would have to be the same for anybody in the universe. It's one of the themes I take up in this book. If you are going to meet aliens, one of the things that you might be able to talk to with them one of the topics you might be able to discuss with them would be mathematics, because presumably a lot of it would be the same. Now, a lot of mathematics is sort of somewhat random and cultural, but there's certain things like, like the numbers. It seems like you'd, you could meet, and later in the book, in fact, he meets some cockroaches from Galaxy Z, and they, you know, they're, they're hanging out talking about math. They're having a pretty good time. Yeah? Uh, why are mathematicians a popular topic in, in popular culture? Uh, that does seem to have happened. That was actually one reason that motivated me to write this book. I was thinking, hey, I'm a mathematician. You know, all these, these people are cashing in on us, and you know, I'm just hanging back writing about uh, other kinds of fields. So uh, 
I think people like the idea of mathematicians because it's they're so well, it's a funny mixture because they're so otherworldly, they're focused on something that is so much not of the physical world. So sort of, you know, like mystics, but then there's this quality that they're uh they're sort of buttressed by this idea of rigorous logic and mathematical proof. So it's a funny mixture. It's it's in a way they're like, you know, yogis that are, are meditating on something, but then there's this funny thing of there being this this deep intellectual content and uh so I guess I guess it's a combination of those two things. Yeah? Um, whatever happened to Cyberpunk? And, uh, do you, do you, um, are you friends with William Gibson or Neil Stevenson? Or do you guys hang out or correspond? Or uh, whatever happened to Cyberpunk? Well, actually, Stevenson I never got to know. Uh, relative to me, he's something of a newbie. <laughs> but I, I, he's only 50, you know. <laughs> so I never got to know him. But yeah, Gibson I know reasonably well. And the cyber, cyberpunks that I see more often, John Shirley lives not very far from here. And I get together with him. I went to see Rancid play at the Warfield with John Shirley. That was, uh, I was proud of us. And uh, then uh, Bruce Sterling I see pretty often. In fact, Bruce and I just finished writing a story together uh, about giant ants. It's about string theory and giant ants. And that, uh, so in a way, well, the one thing that actually got cyberpunk famous, that came out of Berkeley. There used to be a magazine here called Mondo 2000 that was run by some, some great Berkeley types. And uh, then they sort of popularized the idea of cyberpunk. They put out a book called The User's Guide to the New Edge. And uh, it was sort of the best of the magazine, the best of. And Are You Serious said, well, look, we, Rudy, you've got to help us do this because you're a logician. And you know, we need some way to organize this book, and you're the guy who can do this. And so I helped them put it together with Queen Mew, and then uh, then it made the cover of Time Magazine, and it was a cyberpunk issue of Time Magazine. And so that that was sort of the high point in terms of fame of cyberpunk. And the cover it was made here in Berkeley. There's a picture of Heidi Foley on the cover, so that was cool. But and then in a way it it, it it kind of drifted over into had a certain effect on cinema like Terminator, Blade Runner, Max Headroom. Those are all somewhat cyberpunk movies. And uh, but I mean in a way it hasn't gone because we're still writing. Uh, there was the theme of cyberpunk was usually writing about near future worlds where people you had crazed junkies fighting it out with killer robots, which is always a a good power chord. But uh, and we still write about that now and then. Actually, uh, I just finished a book called Post Singular, where I sort of get back to that theme. Uh, th that's not exactly the theme in this book. Uh, no, there are there are. I mean, there, th there's also the political element too. Before cyberpunk, science fiction wasn't very political, and then we brought in some left-wing politics, and that's something as you may have picked up on the little bit I read. That's kind of a theme in this book. They managed to actually bring down the evil president, Joe Dokes, by giving a really good punk rock concert at the, at the baseball stadium. And uh, it, it all, it's all logical, rigorously logical. Yeah? yeah? If, you were going to, if, you were, if you were at the age of going to grad school, you would have gone to mathematics. And if you know what If I were going to grad school now, would I major in mathematics? 
I might, yes. Uh, I mean, certainly, some people would say, well, computer science is more applicable, but the thing is, computer science, in some ways, it's not as deep a field as mathematics. And uh, I think if you learn mathematics first, you can pretty much handle anything that computer science is going to throw at you. Though a lot of mathematicians end up drawn into computer science in one way or another, as I too was, because that's, uh, that's where the money is, or at least it used to be. <laughs> or, or maybe if I was going to college now, I'd major in chemical engineering. That's, that's a, like a really interesting subject. Materials. I think we've only scratched the surface of what we can do with materials. Uh, when I, actually, when I went to college, I wanted to major in English. <laughs> My father didn't want me to do that. He said, you can read books, Rudy. <laughs> you can read all those novels. But, uh, you know, maybe I could have learned more about literature by majoring in English. But as it was, I was happy to major in mathematics. Yeah? What's your take on the use of computers as a method to do proofs? OK, uh, what about proving theorems with computers? Uh, it's. It hasn't worked very well. I mean, it's it's a nice idea. What what happens so often with artificial intelligence programs is we find out that you can do like the easy examples aren't so bad, but then the runtime of a more difficult kind of proof, uh, the, the the search space that you have to go through, gets intractably large. So. Um, I think still, to this day, the, the biggest success of computer theorem proving was they used a computer to check a proof of the four-color conjecture, simply because it had an overwhelmingly not large number of cases. But we're not, we still are not seeing computers do things like prove Fermat's last theorem. And my guess is that, uh, I don't know, it's hard to say. I mean, maybe someday they will prove some good stuff. After all, I mean, computers have gotten to the point where they can play chess uh, as well as many grandmasters. So there, it's like they've managed to basically, simply by cranking up the, the search algorithms, basically they're doing really just exhaustive search, but using some smart ways of pruning out the unfruitful paths. And in a way, proving a theorem is a little bit like that. You want, you're starting here, and you want to get to this theorem, and you want to find the path that leads there. And uh, in some sense, you're, you're going to look at all possible paths. But uh, so far, it seems like, uh, well, mathematics, it's, it's, much more, it's a much more complicated universe than a chessboard. And I think it's just there's so many branches that unless you have a, I guess I was asking really in principle, just in other words, can you, can you say that you have a proof, even though you've cited them? Well, yeah, that's a different question. Yeah. Well, so that's a that's a question of whether, if you have statistical evidence, you've looked at a lot of cases, whether you could say something that was proved. Well, as a mathematician, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that. But I mean, but you you know something. I mean, I'm happy if you say we've proved that it looks like it's, you know, whatever percent probably true. Yeah. Orange, you know, more in general, whether 
the speculations in this book tend to take off from from things we've from actual chaos theory and and, uh, and math, or whether they're more like I'd say that case whether that was from the get go quite a fancy on your part. Well, it's it's sort of based on this idea. It's a sort of so you're sort of asking about the idea of uh, the universal dynamics idea. Is, is that like a a real mathematical notion, or is that sort of a made-up notion? And there is something that happens kind of repeatedly in mathematics. It sort of happened with catastrophe theory and chaos theory and complexity theory, where uh, mathematicians will begin to notice that diverse systems are in some ways similar to each other. And then what I did in this book, I said, well, suppose that it really worked. Okay. Usually these things, they, they work up to a point. I mean, it's metaphorical. You know, they'll say, like, a certain folded shape is like the butterfly catastrophe. It's a little bit like a dog that switches from barking to running away. I mean, there's, they'll, they'll find these analogies. But uh, what, what if we had somebody that, that had things that were actually totally correct? Like, what actually happens next in this? Roland Oud has a model of frost on a window pane, and it turns out that's an exact model for the precincts uh, casting their votes in this campaign that's coming up. And then there, his prediction leaks out beforehand, and so then someone goes and burns down a polling place where the common grounds would have gotten a lot of votes and manages to tip the election. But uh, so. But it would be interesting. So that's the sort of flight of fancy in here, that there could be a world where you could actually get these precise things. Because as I say, so far, and I think it, it always turns out to just be metaphorical, or even Stephen Wolfram's new kind of science. It's the same kind of thing. We get these models, these cellular automata models, that look a lot like physical processes. But then you know, people that, that don't like him will say, well, can you actually predict you know, what's going to happen. And then, well, it's well, no, but I can show you how to think about it in an interesting way. But here I thought it would be cool if we had people to start predicting stuff. And I don't think that's actually possible in our universe for actually reasons that I discuss a little bit in the book. They, they sort of, they're kind of computation theoretic reasons that uh, most processes in the world, like the weather, you, you simply can't predict because there's no way to, no shortcut. The world has to kind of grind it through. and But in this book, uh, that's why I started in a parallel world, actually. So it will be possible to have a world where you can make predictions. And I, I did call them, uh, I think, docile worlds as opposed to fierce worlds, like the one we actually live in. Yeah? Can you make any comparison for us between what it's like to do mathematics and what it's like to write a book? Well, for me, writing a book is easier uh, than writing mathematics because you can write mathematics and then you've got a 100-page proof and then you find a mistake in it and you sort of don't have anything. And, well, computer programming is like that too, but not quite as badly because with a computer program, Unless it freezes up, you'll usually see something. You know, you'll get some kind of behavior, and then you say, "Oh, well, that's cool. I like that." You know, but uh, that's not a bug; it's a feature. But mathematics is a very harsh mistress. It's uh, and in a book, if 
I mean, if you if you misspell a word, like the book doesn't disappear. You know, it's like oh, well, we have to we have to pulp this. You know, and even if there's a logical error in it, people will oh well. You know, so it's it's certainly less a less stern taskmaster. And also for me, um, I, I'm more cut out to be a novelist than a mathematician because I like to be able to put in emotional aspects of my own life, which you can't really do except very indirectly in mathematics. Yeah. You had a question. You. Uh-huh. 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 Okay, so this is a uh, Okay, we have a jellyfish question from from Queen Mew. I'm thrilled to see you here, by the way. Uh, there's a so whether I once wrote a story with Bruce Sterling about giant jellyfish. I, I I like putting invertebrates into my my novels. Like a dog, it's like you have this commonality with a dog. Your vertebrates, you know, you, you can relate to them. But if you get something like an insect or an invertebrate. And actually, in this book, the uh, I guess maybe I'm not giving away too much. If I, if they discover that God is a jellyfish, they actually go to this higher plane, and there's there's this jellyfish that turns out she's doing repeated drafts of our universe. So that's why there's actually several universes. It's like a, somebody writing a novel. You know, there's the first draft, the second draft, and then uh, the one we live in, by the way, is the final draft. So we're we're, we're quite privileged. <laughs> I, you, you may not. Well, that's you know. You may think it's not perfect, but uh, it's as good as it's going to get. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I th I like jellyfish a lot. I like cuttlefish almost even more than jellyfish. They have like really interesting skins, and they put all these patterns on their skins. But you don't see them. The only place you can see cuttlefish around here is at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. But they uh, they have some there. Yeah. What came first, math or the universe? Oh, the universe came first. Math is just a story we make up for ourselves, I think. I, 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 though, I mean, Wolfram has this idea that there ought to be some really simple underlying rule. One of these things, you know, like just some real little tiny rule that, that's generating all of the universe. But in things like that, you always get into the, the sort of endless regress because, you know, where did the rule come from? I mean, that's the universe. You know, what's it living on? So uh, the fact that anything at all exists, that's always, well, that's the miracle that, that, you know, is around us all the time. It's the, you know, Henry, William James used to talk about if you start brooding over that, you get in this state he called ontological wander sickness, which is this sort of, 
queasy feeling that you exist at all and that anything's here and everything's so stubbornly real. And that that stuff, you, you can know about that before you know about math. I, I think that's, that stuff comes before math. Math is more like the story we make up. It's like the, the tribal chant or we're like, the New Guineans making spirit boards, and you know, math is our spirit board, but the wander is there first. That might be a good place to stop. Okay, well, thanks for showing up, guys.